Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the coming nine weeks, we're talking about the nine core practices that summarize the easy yoke of Jesus. We talked about prayer a week ago, and today we go to the practice of Scripture. We want to increasingly become a community of courageous fidelity to orthodoxy in a culture of ideological compromise through the practice of Scripture. And today, I get to teach not solo, but with my good friend, Tim Mackey. Now, Tim is the co-founder of an amazing ministry called The Bible Project, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. I could not recommend it highly enough for anyone uh, who wants to understand Scripture more or bring thoughtful questions to the Bible. But Tim, to us, of course, is... Uh, a member of our community, a brother and a friend. And a question that I often get asked by people as a pastor is, do you get nervous before you preach on Sundays? And I always say, no. Can you imagine if you got really nervous every Monday when you went to work? That would be unbearable to keep (laughs) doing this for any length of time. But today I'm reminded of uh, when I was in seventh grade, my first school dance. (laughs) I feel exactly like that, which was horribly nervous uh, because I have, I've always done this sort of thing as a solo act. And if you're familiar with the Bible Project, you'll know that Tim exclusively does team teaching. And so I feel a lot like I've asked the most popular girl in school to dance with me. (laughs) And all of you are watching. (laughs) So, Tim. Yeah, it's going to be okay. (laughs) It's going to be okay. Let's pray. Yeah. (laughs) Lord, um, there's these incredibly rich words in Psalm 1 that paint a picture of what a life is like when it is rooted in your word, and drawing on your spirit through the word. And it is my desire to increasingly become that picture and for that to be the reality for each one of my brothers and sisters. And I know that we're all coming to this room with probably varying degrees of openness and appetite uh, for your word. And so I pray, God, that you would take the complexity that is each one of our inner lives and that uh, you would work within us gently and lovingly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, John is uh, quite honestly the most intelligent human being that I've ever met. No offense to any one of you. He's an Ivy League grad. His job was some complex form of engineering that I couldn't understand no matter how many times he explained it to me, so I don't stand a chance at recounting it now to you. But I met John when he approached me on a Sunday morning following a teaching that I had given to ask a question, a question that had nothing to do with the sermon, but about the Bible reading that he had done that week. 
You see, a couple of things had gone wrong in John's life, leading him asking, leaving him asking ultimate questions without satisfying answers. A couple of other things had gone quite right in John's life, leading to success and prosperity, which in his own honest self-reflection, he found a whole lot less satisfying than he'd imagined. No one had outright lied to him, but it was kind of like Western society had conspired in this narrative that he was living to perfection but the rewards of that were profoundly underwhelming. So that combination of factors led him to do the unthinkable, to, for the first time in his life, crack open history's most frequently read book and start reading. John was surprised by what he found on the page. He had expected an oversimplified, morally manipulative, laughable explanation of meaning and purpose. But what he found instead was a highly complex story that provoked the deepest of moral questions that seemed not to try to explain everything to him, but ask everything to him until it asked everything of him. And this was very interesting to John that the very book he thought was going to try to sell him something was instead challenging him to sell everything else, to sell his sense of control and his trust structures and his dreams, visions, and plans for his own life, to give it all away and willingly becoming empty-handed and picking up a cross and walking behind Jesus of Nazareth to life and life to the full. That was a plot twist, to say the least. This 66-scroll anthology had been touted to John as an intellectually uncredible, oversimplified fairy tale, when in fact, by his own discovery, it was a highly complex, intellectually honest wrestle with life's deepest questions. It was Western society that had offered him an overly simplified fairy tale. The Bible, he found, was more honest than the world. Now, was the Bible true? Maybe, maybe not. But it was honest, and that got John's attention. John found the Bible so intriguing that he then Googled nearby churches, and he sat through a Sunday worship gathering, and then he approached me, the pastor, with a question or two. That's how he ended up talking to me at the front of the sanctuary about nothing that I had just finished preaching about, but everything that he was reading about. And then every Sunday, without fail, that ritual would repeat itself. John would approach me to ask me a couple of questions about that week's reading, questions for which I rarely had satisfying responses to, but I did have thoughts on his questions, and that gave him a conversation partner. And I can still remember so vividly the Sunday morning, not in that sanctuary, but at a house in upstate New York on the final morning of the Alpha Retreat when John shared with me and a handful of others that the night before when we had invited the Holy Spirit and given silence to pray, he had confessed to Jesus for the first time that he believed in him as Lord and asked him to be a savior and walk beside him as friend every day after that. He had picked up his cross, left everything else on the ground, and taken the first step in the narrow way behind his rabbi. Scripture was and is for John the very unlikely path that leads to life. So John's story is a very beautiful story, and it's very important that we share stories like that. Uh, but it's also important that we share different types of stories about people's encounter with the Bible. Like uh, my friend, who I'll call him Matt, I met him when I lived in the great state of Wisconsin for a number of years. Wisconsin, anybody? Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> yep. Wow, yeah, there's there you go. so much love for Wisconsin <laughs> in here. 
Uh, Why didn't you stay there if it was so awesome, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sorry, I'm throwing off the cadence no, of the it's story. Right. It's fine. Stepping on your toes in the dance already. That's right. Yeah. Uh, um, I met uh, my friend, I'll call him Matt. So my wife and I moved there in the early 2000s uh, so I could go to graduate school at University of Wisconsin-Madison in a department of Hebrew Bible and Jewish studies, which I know sounds like a dream come true for <laughs> most of you. But it was my, it was, uh, uh, my dream and, and uh, I got to be a part of fulfilling it. Um, I met Matt in uh, the church community that we joined and were a part of and he had had a complicated history with the Bible. He grew up in a very devout religious home. His father was a Lutheran minister. Uh, Matt was confirmed when he was age 13. So he grew up around the Bible. Um, but I met him about almost 20 years after all of that, in his early 30s. And he was apathetic, to say the least, and really not compelled by much of that package that he had grown, grown up with anymore. And so, being the Bible nerd that I am, um, he became more interested in the Bible through our conversations, and so he decided to dive into his faith and really try and figure out what he thought about all this once and for all. And so he decided he was going to engage the Bible. He began reading it for the first time in earnest. He started at page one. And about uh, two-thirds away through uh, the first three quarters of your Bible, which is called the Old Testament, he had a pretty serious crisis. Um, and I'll never forget the conversation. What bothered him the most was all of the violence and abuse perpetrated by the so-called heroes of the Bible. And not just that, but the way that God kept associating himself with forgiving and supporting these really destructive people. And then also what bothered him was God's own violence that's displayed in certain stories of the Bible, whether it's the story of the flood or the Israelites going into the land of Canaan. And while we had really good conversations, the place that he reached was he couldn't avoid what was unavoidable for him, which was the conclusion that this is nothing more than an ancient, primitive collection of scrolls about what ancient people thought and wrote about God. And Matt walked away from his faith. And so, it's important to acknowledge, just at the beginning, um, that there are very positive, beautiful stories of people's encounters with the Bible, and there are also the very opposite. There are stories where people find the Bible to be the main obstacle in the way for them uh, following Jesus. Now, my hunch is that in this room, there might be a handful of people at those two ends of the spectrum, my hunch is also that most of us probably fall somewhere in between. But it's just important to name as we have a talk here focused on the role of scripture in the life habits of a follower of Jesus, to just name at the front that all of us have some kind of relationship with the Bible already before we even come to it. And we need to name and honor all of the different types of complexities that come with the Bible. Yeah, the Bible is unique among every book that's ever been written in a number of ways, but one of them is this, that every last one of us has a story with Scripture. 
For some, it would be a, a relationship of suspicion where we keep ourselves at a safe and skeptical distance. And for others, it would be a relationship of fascination that pulls us in. For some, it's a relationship of hate that would deem the scripture not only as uncredible, but even dangerous. And for some, a relationship of love, deeming the words on the pages of the Bible not just to be true, but treasure. Some, it's a relationship of toxic complexity, like that with an abusive parent, where the very one that nurtures you in love is also the one that harms you most deeply. And for some, a relationship of distant admiration, where scripture is great, so long as it's interpreted through a teacher or preacher that I trust. But when I try to approach it on my own, I don't know where to begin. So whether you read this book every day or you've never peeled open the pages, the Bible has been so broadly influential in global history and so culturally influential in Western society that not a single one of us can start with a clean slate. We all have a relationship with the Bible. And we don't all have a relationship with Beowulf or Grapes of Wrath or Green Eggs and Ham or the Quran. And so this is one thing that sets the Bible apart from all other pieces of literature, that none provokes such a broad emotional response as does the scripture. So no one will ever start a discussion on the Bible with a clean slate, but man, I wish we could. So often I wonder what I might find there if I could start without any preconceived notion. So it may be helpful to step back for a moment and, and name something that's actually kind of odd, if you think about it, but we may become normalized to over time and habit. Um, and that's the fact that uh, we are in the habit of gathering every week as a community to sing and pray to an invisible being, and then hear read aloud and taught from a collection of ancient Israelite texts every week. I don't know if that strikes you as a particularly odd way to structure your life, um, but I guarantee for most of your coworkers and neighbors, it does. And it's worth like, entertaining the question, like why? Why do we do this? Um, my hunch is that most of you don't have a group of friends who get together every week and read ancient Egyptian texts, you know, or each ancient Greek text, though knowing Portland, Maybe you do know that group of people, actually. <laughs> but uh, my odds are it's a pretty, pretty small percentage of the population. So why, why? Why would we do that? Why do these texts matter so much? So there's lots of reasons why. I think one of the most simple and helpful answers uh, to ask, answer, answer that question is simply to say, we are a community that's oriented around following Jesus. And Jesus held this collection of texts in the highest regard. So Jesus of Nazareth was the first century Jewish rabbi, and for him, uh, what he called his Bible, he actually didn't call it the Bible, he called it the Scriptures. And it makes up the first three quarters of the Christian Bible, uh, what we call the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus quoted from, he alluded to these writings constantly to explain who he was and what he was doing in the world. And reading and meditating and learning from this collection of texts has been central to the Jesus movement ever since then as we model and imitate the way of Jesus in the world. And that centrality of this collection of writings is fundamental 
to understanding who we are as a community, and it explains why Jesus would say things like this. Luke chapter 24. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything had to be fulfilled that is written about me in the Torah of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened the minds of his, of his apprentices so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So, uh, the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms, Jesus refers to there, that's a, a shorthand in his day to talk about the first three quarters of the Christian Bible, the, the Old Testament, or the, or the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus found in that collection not just interesting things that his ancestors thought about the world. Jesus found there his family history, the history of his own people and of his ancestors. And the whole collection, which consists of all kinds of stories, lots of poetry, is telling the story of a consistent history of encounters that this family, the Israelite family, had with a divine being named the one who is, which is just the raddest name ever, <laughs> the, the, the one who is, uh, which is pronounced in Hebrew, Yahweh. And their encounters with Yahweh begin with God calling this figure named Abraham, the ancestor, one of the most important ancestors of the Israelites. And Abraham was called out of ancient Mesopotamia to go to this land that today we call Israel-Palestine. And that there, God was going to do something through Abraham and his family. God promised that he was going to restore a gift to the human family, a gift of unending, infinite life and goodness and blessing. And he was going to give that gift to the world through this one particular family. And so what's interesting is that as the story goes on throughout the collection, there's a real twist to it. Because this family, generation after generation, consistently fails to live up to the calling that God has placed on them to be the bearers of the gift. Um, it's the exact opposite of like primitive nationalistic literature that worships all of its heroes and heroines. It actually is mostly an expose on human nature about how consistently selfish, often stupid, short-sighted, frail, and prone to violence that most of us are. And that's precisely the version and the truth about humans that it is revealed in this story. And so after so many generations of this God being so patient with this family, and they prove themselves to be so unfaithful to this partnership, that God hands them over to their own self-destruction, but with another twist. The one who is actually commits to going with his own people into their ruin and to suffer along with them and to be among them in the midst of their pain. And out of that deep commitment, Israel's prophets saw something. They saw hope. And so in the prophetic books and in the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible, you find this hope portrayed. What if there would come among us a human who would be so faithful to God to actually fulfill the partnership that God wants with humans and be the true bearer of that gift of infinite, unending life to all of the world? And they begin to write poems anticipating the arrival of such a one. They called this figure the Messiah or the Anointed One, the Priest, 
the royal king, the new human. And they also anticipated that if humans were ever going to become consistent partners with God and recipients of this gift, that we were going to have to somehow be recreated from the inside out as if becoming new humans all over again. And so this hope builds and builds throughout the collection, but the story never registers a moment of fulfillment. The Hebrew Bible is an unfinished story in that way. And that's exactly the story that Jesus saw himself picking up and carrying forward, which is why he said mm. the things that he said in what Tyler just read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. So Jesus presented himself as that one, but even more so. So he presented himself as the Israelite, like the descendant of Abraham, who was actually going to fulfill the purpose of the gift to this family in the first place and become the vehicle of faithfulness that would bring unending life to the nations, but even more. Jesus also claimed in his words and deeds that he was the one who is become human so that the creator actually becomes the faithful human partner that we are all made to be but consistently fail to be. And so Jesus run, uh, comes right into the human story at the moment where the crisis is like at a, at a fever pitch. And in taking the pain and the suffering of humanity into himself and challenging the powers that be in his day for the way they abuse and idolize Idolatries, I was about to say. I think it's idolized. Yeah, felt right. I think I just stepped on your toe right there <laughs> in the dance. Um, the way that the powers that be of his day had abused the power that had been given to them. And so Jesus both poked the bear, criticized the bear, and healed all of those being stomped on by the angry bear. This is working. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Um, and he allowed, he, what he allowed is the tr for the train wreck of human history to kill him. And what the earliest followers of Jesus found in that sacrificial death was the ultimate act of the one who is generous love. Mm. That he would enter into our suffering and die because of us, with us, and for us. And then overcome the power of human violence and death in his resurrection from the dead. And so after his resurrection, like was when we read those words right there, he sent out his followers to go announce good news to the nations that the game is on and the gift is more available than it ever has been before. And he sent out his followers with the power of his own life-giving presence to be at work in the world through them. And specifically, he commissioned a handful of his earliest followers, they're called the apostles, which is a Greek word spelled with English letters that means people who are sent. And he commissioned them to go start new Jesus communities all over the ancient Roman world. And as they did so, they wrote letters to each other. And so the foundation stories of Jesus and the letters are essentially what make up what we call the last quarter of the Christian Bible, which is uh, the New Testament. And, and these texts and this story are the foundation story for the Jesus movement, and they have been for 2,000 years. So there's a lot more to say about why these texts are so central, but that at least is a fairly concise version. Yeah, so okay. uh, under, so understanding a sweeping overview of the scriptures, we're still left with this question, that if 
reading the scripture is a core practice for the way of Jesus, and if the, the whole collection of scrolls is revealing a person, Jesus, who in a one-word descriptor of his personality is love, why is it that we all have such complex and wide-ranging relationships with scripture? Why do some parts comfort me while other parts make me wince and want to look away? Why is it that some have been healed by scripture and others have been wounded by it? Why is it that some can read the story and feel dignified and empowered and others can read the same story and hang their heads in shame? If the Bible is inspired and good and trustworthy and true, then why is it so complicated? So that is such an important question. And it's vitally important that when that question surfaces from someone's experience with the Bible, to honor it, to create space for it, and not to shame it, and certainly not to try and undermine or provide too quick of a solution. Jesus is a big boy, and he can walk with people through seasons of tension, of anxiety, of doubt, and of great faith, as he teaches us what it means to be human, both by imitating him and by learning together what it means to be faithful to this story. One set of reasons for why it's so complicated to encounter these texts and respond to them and hear wisdom from them is actually pretty simple and intuitive when you think about it. It's this, this is a collection of texts that come from a different time, thousands of years ago, a different culture, an ancient Near Eastern Israelite culture, and from a very different language, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, which work really, really different than uh, does modern English, which is uh, what most of us speak, though not exclusively, that's important. Um, what that means uh, is that if you we're going to learn how to engage these texts with more wisdom, it means learning some new skills, like effort will have to be put in. And when you put in effort, you're gonna have to gain some new tools. And tools offer a lot of potential. Uh, they offer also uh, a lot of pitfalls. For example, uh, my hammer. I'd like to show you a picture of my hammer. I'm particularly attached to it. Uh, I've had it for a couple decades now. I took that picture the other day, as you can see by the ice and the snow. I actually don't remember what day it was when I took it, because every day felt the same, over <laughs> and over and over again. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, but at some point in the last week, I took that picture. Um, that hammer uh, sits in my tool garage, and uh, what I at least would like to paint a picture of the promise and pitfall of tools is something like what happened to that hammer uh, about six or seven years ago. My boys, uh, August and Roman, they were four and six at the time, and they loved to play with my tools once they discovered where they were. And I will never forget the first time they discovered my hammer, um, what they did was they took it promptly to um, this dig pit they were making in the backyard, and they saw the, in, in the claw of the hammer there that's supposed to be for pulling out nails, what they saw was a pickaxe. And so they just consistently used it to turn up the dirt, and then they used their hands to, to scoop it out. Now, here's what's so great about that, is that they had the right intuition. It is a tool. It has a handle that I'm supposed to swing. Like, great work, buddies. Like, you just figured that out, and I didn't have to say anything at all. Um, but what they also misunderstood was its design purpose. Right intuition, less than helpful method for using it. Now, was it, did they, could they, like, pick at dirt 
and chop up the dirt with it. Yes, of course, like they could make it work that way. Um, but there are two problems, at least long term. One is that it's not a very good digging tool because you don't have any scoop to have when you're done. But then second is if you don't use it according to its design purpose, you'll actually miss out on the opportunity of what it is designed to do. And I think something like that is behind the, one, uh, the complicated set of relationships that many of us have with the Bible. I think many of us have right intuitions about what the Bible is for, but over time, different parts of the Christian tradition, different people develop less than helpful methods for how to make Scripture do the things that we feel like it, it should be doing. And so what we would like to do is explore a handful of those that, at least in my experience, are some of the biggest issues that people face when they learn how to read the Scriptures. Yeah, so I will name these three good intuitions, and uh, beneath those, we're going to explore a helpful and a less than helpful method for engaging that intuition, sort of as a map for how we'll use the remainder of our time. Three good intuitions. Scripture is designed to teach us about what is true. Scripture is meant to give us wisdom about what is good. And finally, Scripture is the place we learn to hear God. All good. So how do we engage those intuitions to construct rather than to destruct? So the conviction that Scripture is designed to teach us about what is true, this has a deep, deep history in the Jesus movement, and it goes back to Jesus' own conviction and words about Scripture. So Jesus' conviction is that these texts come from like people. They were written by his ancestors, Israelites, Moses, and the prophets. But also, he had the deep conviction that through these human words, God speaks to his people so that the human words can be said to be a vehicle of God's word so that what I'm encountering when I read and meditate on these texts in community is the word of God. So because this God's faithfulness to this family through all of their history, calling Abraham, rescuing them out of Egypt, going with them into their suffering, promising that someone and something would happen to bring resolution to it all. Their God had been so faithful that Jesus stood on this rock-solid conviction that what God has said is trustworthy, it's reliable, it points to the truth. That is a right and good tuition. However, we can develop, I think, what are less than helpful methods for accessing what it is that Scripture is trying to tell us as truth. So especially in, um, not only, but especially in the modern era of the Western church, uh, there has developed a habit of treating the Bible a lot like other resources that we go to when we want to know the answer to something. If I want to know like something about the wild water buffalo and what like kingdom or genus it belongs to, because mm -hmm. that's a question my seventh grader had actually in the last week. And so um, what I uh, do is I go to the Google, yeah? Like that's mm -hmm. our modern day encyclopedia. And then, um, you know, it takes you to Wikipedia. Anybody? Yeah. So, right? And so for better or worse, this is how like we find the answers to things. Or do you just ask Siri, one of those. But so that's our modern way and we're trained that for every question I have, there is an answer and I need a quick tool to get me an answer to that. And so in a culture where that's the environment, 
Um, it's very easy for Christian traditions to develop a set of habits for treating the Bible like a reference tool or like an encyclopedia. I have a question about God. I have a question about where God is or what God is like, who I am, what I am like, what kind of world am I in? Well, certainly, there's a page with a paragraph with a sentence that holds the answer to my question. And I don't know if this resonates with any of you, but when I started following Jesus in my early 20s, there were many environments where I was in where that's the way that I was taught what the Bible is and what it's for. You have a question? Let me tell you. It's on this page. Here's the answer right here. Good intuition, less than helpful method. Why? Well, one problem with that approach is the Bible itself. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic. If you just read the first sentence of the Bible, it reads in the beginning. And you can go all the way to the, like the last page and read the second to last paragraph, which concludes with the sentence, and they reigned forever and ever. Now, I am certain that there's no encyclopedia in the local library that begins in the beginning and ends with forever and ever. This is how epic stories begin, are, are, are told. This is how epic narratives present themselves. A huge cast of characters, long story with plots and subplots, poetry, song, maybe some dancing, right? letters woven into the whole mix. The Bible presents itself as, as a story. And it, the story is what I tried to summarize just a few minutes ago. But if the Bible is presenting itself as a story, the questions that it is designed to answer are the questions that all of us wake up <clears throat> thinking about most of the time anyway. Those questions are, who are we? Where are we? Why are we even here in the first place? What's the problem if you think that there is one? And what's the solution if you think that there is one? And whether we realize it or not, most of us are waking up and operating out of usually an unexamined set of answers to those questions that we've picked up somewhere. And the Bible is directly addressing these questions through the medium of a story. So who are we? Human beings in the story of the Bible are the most glorious idiots that you have ever met in your life. We are glorious images of God meant to reflect God's love and wisdom out into the world as partners and co-creators and stewards of this good world. And yet we are also at the same time some of the most short-sighted, self-oriented, stupid creatures on the face of the planet whose decisions have either huge effects for good or huge effects for bad. Where are we? Oh, that is such a good question. <laughs> we're apparently on a flying space rock, I know, and we're hurtling through the universe at unimaginable speeds, but the biblical authors didn't think of the world that way. They thought of the world as we're on a big piece of dry land that is surrounded by chaos waters that are threatening to destroy us at every moment unless God holds them back by his mercy, which he typically does. And why are we even here? We're here to be the love and wisdom of God reflected into the world as humans, to receive God's love and to reflect it out through creative ordering and through loving interpersonal relationships and community formation. What's the problem? Us. <laughs> we are both the solution and the problem. And so what what's, is the solution? Well, man, if we had a human who was so 
unified and one with the Creator, that just what they did and said was what the Creator would want said and done in the world. And if we had a human who could actually deal with the train wreck of human history and violence and abuse, while not getting rid of us all, but actually somehow recreating us all so that we can all be the glorious images of God that we are actually made to be. Man, what if there was somebody like that who came along? And that's precisely how Jesus presented himself. And so the Bible actually is answering our most fundamental questions, but it doesn't do it like an encyclopedia. It does it through the medium of a story. And if we approach the Bible most fundamentally as a story, it doesn't only help us understand the scriptures intellectually, it actually allows the scriptures to transform us most uh, formationally. Story is a medium of communication that involves both the head and the heart, or the intellect and the emotions. Psychologically speaking, uh, story has the power to shape the human imagination because it involves both the right and left hemispheres of the brain. That does not hold for just a straightforward explanation of facts. The left side of the brain uh, processes logically the sequence of events in a story, and the right side interprets the meaning of those events. Both ways of knowing, logical and emotional, are active when you are watching a film or reading a book or just listening to a friend tell you a story. Uh, think about music. It works similarly. You are more likely to be moved or to even remember the lyrics to a song if you hear that song than if you just read those lyrics without melody. Why? Because the melody is involving the part of your brain that just reading the lyrics isn't engaging. The whole person is engaged in harmony by music. And the same thing happens in the increasingly popular form of trauma healing therapy known as neurofeedback. You recount a difficult or painful traumatic event in your past while both hemispheres of your brain are electrically activated because that accelerates the processing and healing of those past events in your person. That exact same thing happens when you or I interact with a story. For instance, uh, uh, one example would be modern estimates are that up to 30% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. Now that is a fact about the world that you and I live in. And it's possible that you would just hear that fact and it not give rise to much empathy or compassion within you. It's just a statistic. Unless miscarriage is a part of your story. And then simply me mentioning that fact in a setting like this one is a thread that pulls on a whole narrative in your past where suddenly you are recalling the excitement of that initial pregnancy test and then the way that you couldn't help but daydream about what August was going to be like when you were pushing a stroller around and, and the fact that you told your mom and your sister and your best friend and then the doctor's appointment that you'll never stop reliving and the phone calls that you had to make afterwards and the grief that you bore, that almost everyone had no idea that you were bearing while you walked through it. You see, that's a story that is activated by the simple mention of that fact. And if instead of telling you that statistic about our world, I tell you the story of someone who's lived that statistic, 
then it suddenly enlivens the empathy and compassion that most of us can hear a statistic without. This is how story functions different than just straightforward explanation. And the Bible is a story. It is the true story of the whole world. It's the true story that you find yourself within. And that means that it is a story that is both intellectually credible to offer truth and it's emotionally aware enough to offer healing. But for any story, including the biblical story, to form and to shape you, consistency is required. Modern studies have found that the number one shaping influence on the empathy and compassion that a human being lives with is reading a novel. Why is that? Because a novel is a story that you're entering into where you develop compassion. But why is it that a novel has more say on your formation than uh, taking in a story through a film or a television series? The psychological consensus is that it comes down to time. That when most people read a book, they spend more time on the pages than they ever do before a screen. And so you are revisiting a story night after night, day after day, entering into these characters' lives over a long period of time and very consistently so that empathy and compassion can be cultivated. Compassion for myself and others is one slowly through story, consistent, regular interaction with the same characters over a long period of time. Reading the Bible from time to time might help you understand the grand story, but it will not redeem your story. For the Bible to have formational potential in your life, you cannot only take it in Sunday after Sunday through the preaching of someone else. You cannot take it in through sporadic reading because that feels more organic than regular formation. You must revisit the story consistently and regularly so that it can harmonize the whole person and form you from within. A second intuition uh, that most people have if they've been raised in a Christian family or in a church tradition is that scripture is meant to give us wisdom about what is good. Maybe that's not quite how you would word it, but uh, my hunch is that this intuition is actually uh, behind a lot of people's most painful encounters with the Bible. Not because the intuition is wrong, but because of a less helpful method for getting the Bible to do that. So what we're talking about is parts of the Bible that label certain human behaviors as leading towards life and goodness or doing the opposite. So love your neighbor, be kind, be generous, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, those kinds of things. So if you are to take that set of intuitions and then use the encyclopedia approach to the Bible, you don't get like a dictionary answer book. You get a set of less helpful methods in church communities that look more like approaching the Bible like a behavior manual or like a rule book. And here's the thing is that like using the hammer as a digging tool, you can really do a lot with the Bible, treating it like a rule book, appealing to, once again, what Behavior do I want to know if God is for? Page, chapter, sentence. What do I know what God forbids? What's the page, chapter, and sentence? But this approach to learning wisdom about what's good from the Bible, it short circuits pretty, pretty quick. Quick experiment here. Um, I'm gonna read a, a sentence, 
completely out of context uh, from one of Paul's letters to a local church community in ancient Ephesus called Ephesus. Uh, I just said it. Called the letter to the Ephesians. And he says this, Ephesians 5 verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to ruin. Fairly clear, yes? Um, wine is apparently something that you really have to be careful of or else it will ruin your life. So probably it seems like I should very only occasionally indulge and enjoy it. But then just a few pages later, in another letter from the same author, I read something like this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Yeah, you need to stop drinking only water. Yeah, definitely have some wine because of your stomach and frequent illnesses. Okay, so actually I should probably have wine at least as much as I have water or at least every day, especially if you have stomach problems. So what is God's will regarding wine? So very sparingly or every day, I'm a little bit confused. Let me add another layer of complication, not related to wine, but seafood, for example. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Of all the creatures living in the water, you can eat any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you cannot eat, for, it is, uh, for you it is impure. Okay, so no calamari, right? no fried eel, um, but definitely sushi, that's cool, all right. Uh, and again, the wine complication, I'm really not sure what to do on this one now. So are you guys with me? So it's a very quick sampling, but there are hundreds of commands about behavior in the Bible. And if you read it like an encyclopedia, what will happen over time is that different communities of Jesus will create their own specialized collections of certain commands that they raise above all of the others. And then all of a sudden, the Bible is being remade in our own social and cultural image. And it's these types of less than helpful practices that often lead to people getting really, really hurt by the Bible. So what is a better way forward then? Because if you treat the Bible like a rule book or a behavior manual, you can make the Bible command or forbid almost anything. Yeah, it may be helpful to think of the Bible less like a map and more like a compass. So think of it this way. A close friend of mine gifted me Michael Chabon's collection of essays called Pops for my 33rd birthday. Michael Chabon is a novelist, but he's also a father of four, and he published this collection of essays on the topic of fatherhood that he had written over the scattered years of his life. And I, when I was gifted this, was a father of two very small children, and I had just published my first book that year. So I'll never forget sitting on my Brooklyn balcony as I opened to the first essay and I read a letter from a writer who is a father of four as someone who had just become a writer and was a father of two. I, a young father, hearing my children squeal inside just on the other side of the door, read a letter that concluded this way. If none of my books turn out to be among the bright remnant because I allowed my children to steal my time, narrow my compass, and curtail my freedom, I'm all right with that. Once they're written, my books, unlike my children, hold no wonder for me. No mystery resides in them. Unlike my children, my books are cruelly unforgiving of my weaknesses, failings, and flaws of character. Most of all, my books, unlike my children, do not love me back. 
You see, this letter from Michael Chabon, it functioned for me less like a map and more like a compass. It wasn't that he was telling me exactly what to do and the complex conditions of the different parts of my life and the way that they intersected with one another at that exact moment. But what he was doing is he was giving me a compass to navigate this wilderness called fatherhood, pointing me to a true north, a compass that I've tried to walk in step with since I first read it. And the Bible's like that. It is a compass for those who walk the narrow way of Jesus through the wilderness that is the complexities of each of our lives. So the biblical authors had a a word that they used to describe what Tyler is telling a story about, the development of a deep sense of knowing and of intuition that this is the right and good thing to do, that God is inviting me to do. And biblical authors use the word wisdom to describe that experience. And what is very interesting is that wisdom is one of the most consistent words used to describe the Bible within the Bible itself. Let me show you just one actually very important and poignant example. We're back to the letters of Paul the Apostle again uh, in his letter to, uh, second letter to Timothy. In chapter 3, he says this. He says, from infancy, Timothy, you have known the sacred scriptures. They are able to give you wisdom. About what? About the rescue that comes through trusting in the Messiah, who is Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for challenging, correcting, and training in what is right, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for doing every kind of good. So notice the first word that comes out of Paul's mouth, who was another rabbi and grew up immersed in the scriptures. The first word he uses to describe scripture is wisdom. It gives wisdom. And notice how he describes how it gives wisdom. It gives wisdom, and then he tells, in very short form, the story of the Bible. It's about how we need to be rescued. It's about how that rescue comes through trusting not pulling up ourselves by our bootstraps, by trusting that God has done something for us that we seem incapable of doing for ourselves. And what is that? It's what Jesus accomplished in his life and death and resurrection as Israel's Messiah. Are you with me? Apparently, sitting in that story, day after day, week after week, begins to form wisdom. How? And let's go back to um, that passage, because he gives a short list of ways that Scripture makes us wise. By teaching us, you're going to learn things you've never even thought to think before. It's going to challenge. It's going to take the things that you do think and say, why do you think that? Is that really wise? Is that really true? Is that really good? It's going to correct ways that we've developed mental habits or life habits that are actually are not leading to life for ourselves or the people around us. You should probably stop doing that. And then it's about the formation, notice the word training, repetition of new mental and life and relational habits that do lead us to imitate the way of Jesus that leads to life. This is what scripture is for, apparently, to give us, to give us wisdom. And the reason why this to me is so much more compelling than scripture as like a behavior manual or a rule book is because rules can tell you what to do in a situation If you give someone a rule, they'll know what to do in one situation. But if you teach someone wisdom, 
they begin to know how to discern what is good in any situation mm -hmm. and for a lifetime. And this is what the apostles and Jesus talked about in being in tune with the will of God and learning to listen to the voice of the Spirit. It's about discerning what is most good in this particular life. The Bible could never be long enough as a rule book to cover all the complexities and the differences of our lives. Mm -hmm. But it gives us wisdom by telling us a story and it shapes us into people who begin to know what it feels like for a situation to be more in line with the will of God instead of less. One more? One more. One more good intuition. Scripture is the place where we learn to hear God. So again, Jesus' conviction was that through these words written by human Israelites, Jesus and his people heard God's word addressing them. And even though that these words, and this is to use the phrase of a Hebrew Bible scholar that I've learned so much for, uh, from over the years, John Walton, that you and I sitting here in 21st century, like on northwestern coast of America or wherever you're listening from, we are not the original audiences that the parts, different parts of scripture were written to. I'm not an ancient Israelite. I'm not a first century Corinthian living in Corinth getting Paul's letter. So even, but even though scripture was not written to us in its original setting, it is and always has been for every generation of God's people. And so there's an art, it's another skill that requires tools. There's an art in learning to hear God speaking to me through texts that were not originally written to me. There's the dance with scripture that, in theory, could work even better than the dance we're apparently yeah. doing right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what does it mean to develop uh, that set of skills? Somehow, through a set of immersive, habit-forming, repeated practices by myself and with other people, there are ways to learn how to hear God in a personal knowledge encounter kind of way through these words of scripture. And that is how they functioned for Jesus. And that is how they've functioned for followers of Jesus throughout history. And here's the thing, so that's the right intuition. The question is how? What are more helpful methods, methods versus less than helpful methods? For some people, where you might be at with the Bible is at a place where this thing's big, it's long, it's complicated. And every once in a while, I come across a line that is just that is so beautiful, that is so inspiring, I feel the warm fuzzies. And if that's, where, if that's where you're at, when you find that sentence in the Bible, double high five. Like, way to go, that's awesome. And you should focus on that. You should think about memorizing that, writing it down, putting it around where you can be reminded of it in your life. However, the Bible isn't a grab bag of inspirational one-liners. Every one of those warm, fuzzy feeling lines comes in a whole context in a whole part of a story, in a whole collection. And so learning to take the next step, to read larger chunks, and to reread and to meditate on scripture in larger portions is an inevitable step of growth in the journey of learning to hear God in and through scripture. What's also important in a step forward is if I only ever stay at the stage where I isolate and focus on the parts of the Bible that make me feel good, is that I'm going to avoid or just never know about all of the parts of the Bible that do not make me feel good mm -hmm. and that provoke me and disturb me and make me ask questions or confuse me. 
And I just would invite you to consider, is it possible that all of those parts of the Bible, they're not like glitches, they're features. And they're there on purpose. They're there to invite us into seasons of following Jesus where that imitate real life. I have no clue what's going on in my daily life most of the time anyway. And so the fact that my own journey of reading the Bible takes me along a similar path. I don't know why God said that or did that or why that person is doing that, but it invites me to sit in a place of tension, of unresolved uh, tension and move forward in trust and in dialogue with God and with other people in, in my church community. The challenging parts of the Bible are there on purpose. It all depends on how you respond to it. And even though I tried to invite my friend Matt that I told the story about, that's not where he was at. He didn't want to sit in the tension and take the next step of the journey. And it's still my prayer for him that one day that he will. But that's the opportunity that sits in front of us every time uh, we sit in front of a challenging part of the Bible. And those are just as important as the parts that make us feel warm and fuzzy. And so what are a set of practices that I can begin to form in my life where I take in more parts of the Bible and I'm hearing the parts that I like and the parts that I don't like. Here's a few thoughts. Read the Bible with your friends. It might sound weird to like get pizza, hang out at so-and-so's house at Friday night and read a whole book of the Bible aloud. You can actually do it and it is actually awesome. And you will be, you will be like the people <laughs> <laughs> Your coworkers will think that how you think about people who sit around reading ancient Egyptian literature, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? But uh, it actually can be a, a, really, a really good time. I'm, I'm serious about that one. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> um, Rereading a part of the Bible in a larger chunk over and over and over again through a whole season of your life. Memorizing the warm, fuzzy parts of the Bible, memorizing the parts of the Bible that have you confused. There is one whole book of the Bible that is about prayer and communing with God. It's mm -hmm. called the Book of Psalms. There's 150 poetic prayers of praise, of gratefulness, of lament, of frustration, all of it voiced to God. And these prayers of people's words to God become this gift of God's word to us to teach us how to talk to God in ways that maybe you never even have imagined to do before. And there's 150, you can make it through the collection, even just that one a day, two-ish times a year, uh, if you form that kind of habit. There are so many ways to engage the Bible, but the, but the most important part of this intuition is not that you learn more about the Bible, that's what the first two in intuitions are about. This one is about learning to hear God's voice speaking wisdom to me about my life through scripture. Yeah, often we have this, at our moment in history at least, a very unhelpful divide between Bible churches and Holy Spirit churches, uh, between the more objective, intellectual pursuit of knowing God in his story and the more subjective, mystical pursuit of knowing God in my story, between understanding God's voice on paper and ink and understanding God's voice as a still, small whisper to my soul. And this is a completely false dichotomy. Jesus himself said in John 14, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. 
So the Holy Spirit is a teacher, Jesus says, but a particular kind of teacher, one with no original content, but, but simply one who reminds you of everything that I've said. And where are the words of Jesus? They're on the pages of Scripture, meaning that the Holy Spirit works in cooperation with, not competition with, the Bible. Uh, scripture is the training ground for hearing God's voice. Until we learn to discern God's voice in Scripture, it is very difficult for us to know God's voice anywhere else. And as soon as we know God's voice in Scripture, it is nearly impossible not to start hearing God pretty much everywhere else. So if you want to learn to prophesy in power, read the Bible. And if you want to see and know God and nature and creation all around you, read the Bible. If you want to pray for supernatural healing and deliver the demonized and do only what you see the Father doing, then read the Bible. Uh, it's where we learn to hear him everywhere else. So we'll close with how do I read the Bible to hear God? Mm -hmm. uh, we thought instead of just talking about it anymore, we've done plenty of that so far, what if we just read the Bible together right now, shall yeah. we? So uh, I'm going to invite you to kind of put down whatever is around you, and uh, we're going to engage in a meditative uh, reflection on the scripture that we heard read earlier, the first half of Psalm 1. I'm just going to read it right now and point out one observation. Mm -hmm. And I guess if you're a note taker, you might want your notes for that. So maybe don't put your stuff down. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, I'm going to read it. Uh, and then Tyler's going to lead us in some re-readings where we'll meditate and discern what God might be saying to each one of us uh, through this poem. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3 reads, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, their delight is in the instruction of Yahweh, and they meditate on his instruction day at night. That person is like a tree planted by, planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, they prosper. That central statement of their delight in the, God's instruction leads them to meditate. Um, the word meditate is pronounced Hagah in Hebrew, which is the language the poem was written in. Um, and meditate is one way that you could render it into English. When this word is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, it describes the sound that doves make when they coo. I guess. It's, yeah. It describes the sound that a bear makes when it's come over its prey, moaning, grutter, growling, something I don't know, like that. I've never, thankfully, I've never been on <laughs> yeah. the bear as its prey. It can also be used to describe what people do when they quietly recite and repeat something to themselves. So to meditate is about a focusing on one's mind and an out loud to yourself quiet recitation of words. So what this psalm is depicting is the ideal reader of scripture isn't just a reader, they're, a, they're a, a meditator, they're a reciter. They're someone who's dedicated themselves to a lifetime of reading and rereading these words individually and communally and in them discerning the will of God that leads to life that is so, so beautiful it can only be described in the language of the Garden of Eden 
Mm. A tree that never stops giving fruit because it's planted by an eternal stream of life. Yeah, Eugene Peterson describes meditating on this word Hagah in this passage that we've just read and then looking down from his desk to see the family dog next to him gnawing on a bone and saying, oh, that's it. <laughs> it's not just chewing something and gulping it down. It's, it's gnawing on it. It is savoring it. That is what the scripture is talking about. That is the ideal reader that the scripture is looking for. And this way of reading the Bible became a practice called Lectio Divina that is founded in the Desert Fathers and Mothers of the third and fourth century and then uh, was popularized by Saint Benedict who founded the uh, monastic sect that kind of syncretized all of the others and is still active today and has given this way of reading scripture to the church ever since. Uh, we developed this resource called Bread, where we took the four movements of Lectio Divina, which are words in Latin, and tried to make them an acronym in English. And so the, the gift of this resource isn't that it tells you what to read out of Scripture every day. It's that it tells you how to read the Scripture in the first couple of pages through this uh, this way of being still, reading, encountering, applying, and then devoting the scripture to our lives.